Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently recorded episodes on Netflix's startling adult animated series Blue Eye Samurai, and a mega episode on Fargo, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, and Monarch Legacy of Monsters, three recent TV series we've enjoyed that were all derived from movies. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. Our usual co-host Keith Phipps said something about an experiment he had to finish, and he was last seen heading into a violent thunderstorm. But while the Keith's away, the rest of us will play. Specifically, we're going to play around with the format a little bit this week. If you're listening to us now, you probably already know the score for this podcast. I pretty much just said it. We pair two films, one classic, one current. Not this week. Genevieve, you want to tell everybody why? Sure. Yorgos Lanthimos's new movie, Poor Things, based on Alistair Gray's novel, is something of a riff on Mary Shelley's classic Frankenstein story with an amoral mad scientist creating unnatural life from dead flesh, then struggling with the consequences. It seemed like a natural pairing with James Whale's 1931 classic Frankenstein, which gave cinema some indelible images and lines that still affect movies, TV, and literature today, particularly the image of Boris Karloff as the square-headed green monster with bolts in his neck. But Poor Things primarily centers on a female perspective rather than a male one, with Emma Stone starring as Bella, the artificially created creature learning how to be human and how to navigate the world and, most specifically, how to escape her creator. There's just as much resonance there with Whale's 1935 sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein, which has the central mad scientist collaborating with an unwanted partner to make a wife for the title character. When we realized both of the James Whale movies were only about 70 minutes long, we decided we didn't have to choose between them, so we're going to talk about both. So this week, we'll discuss the misshapen monsters of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, and how their different approaches to the same characters feels like it's set up nearly a century of expectations for sequels in Hollywood. And next week, we'll bring in Poor Things and consider how much it changes the paradigm to have a monster who can think, speak, and above all, choose for herself. Stay with us. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. (laughs) To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, 
the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! It's all but given that if you watch a Hollywood studio movie based on a successful book and then read the book, the differences will be profound and sometimes shocking. And yet, even on that scale, it's still pretty stunning to read Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein as an adult after long exposure to the Universal Studios version and see how remarkably different her version of the monster was. Shelley's book is a gothic novel about a soulful, intelligent, artificial life who pleads with his creator in lengthy emotional speeches, defending his own humanity, begging for a future, and pursuing revenge with calculated cunning when his creator scorns him. James Whale's 1931 movie turns the monster into an inarticulate hulk, lurching from place to place, reacting instinctively to whatever he encounters, and accidentally spreading disaster wherever he goes. How did we get from Shelley's book, full of literary references and philosophical treatises, to the movie version we started picking up practically in the cradle via cultural osmosis and endless pop culture references? We can start with the fact that James Whale's movie isn't really an adaptation of Shelley's novel. It's an adaptation of a 1927 stage play by Peggy Webling. I haven't read that play, but from what I've read about the history of Whale's movie, it sounds like Webling was the one who was responsible for a lot of those shifts in focus and for turning the story into a much simpler morality play about the consequences of human scientists playing God. But while that theme of hubris and the perils of science was simpler and easier to bring to the stage and the screen, it likely isn't the reason Whale's version of the story has done so much to eclipse Shelley's original. For that, you can credit the movie's memorable imagery. Mad scientist Henry Frankenstein and his hunchbacked assistant lurking in the dark outside a cemetery like vultures, waiting for everyone to leave so they can tear into a fresh grave. Boris Karloff, huge and heavy-lidded and barely human-looking under his prosthetics, credited with an ominous question mark in the opening credits, as if it lumbered onto the set unidentified during shooting and everyone was too frightened to make him leave. The laboratory full of sparking electrical gimcracks, with a powerful storm outside and a corpse on a slab waiting for new life. A frightened, angry mob waving torches and pitchforks, seething through the countryside, looking for something to burn. And above all, the monster, in a moment of ominous, clearly temporary peace, looming over a little girl who tries to play with him, not understanding the danger he poses even at his friendliest. Those are the images that caught the public imagination in 1931 and turned Karloff into a star and Frankenstein's monster, or far more often just Frankenstein, into a cultural anchor. It also cemented the idea of the Universal Movie Monster, a signature staple that would boost Universal Studios for the century to come. James Whale's Frankenstein was a lifesaver for Universal, which was struggling at the beginning of the 1930s with millions of dollars in losses. When its adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula became a hit in February 1931, the studio rushed to find more classic monsters to put on screen, and Frankenstein went from rights purchase to production to release within the span of the year, hitting theaters in December 1931. It was a well-reviewed hit as well, grabbing public attention with its spectacle, its eerie imagery, and its broadly drawn iconic characters, some of whom feel just as monstrous as Karloff's creature, but in very different ways. The film was such a success that Universal immediately wanted a second helping, and it commissioned Whale to make Bride of Frankenstein, which came out two years later. The tonal differences between the two movies are stark, and frankly, kind of hilarious. Bride opens with a framing device where Mary Shelley, her lover Percy Bysshe Shelley, and their friend Lord Byron ponce about a dreary study, spouting exposition about the Frankenstein story that comes with flashbacks to the first film. Mary tells them that the story continued from there and draws them into a new narrative where the monster improbably survived his confrontation at the end of the 1931 movie and went on to encounter a new, even madder scientist. 
Bride of Frankenstein is much more playful than the first movie, with that matter scientist, Dr. Pretorius, showing off a collection of tiny people and bottles that he's created, and theatrical mainstay Uno O'Connor barging into every other scene as a local servant with plenty to say about all the goings-on. Bride of Frankenstein openly draws a lot of elements from Shelley's book that were missing from the first adaptation, like the monster's longing for a companion, the way he finds comfort and peace in companionship with a blind man who can't see his misshapen face and his conscious threatening of his creator's wife in order to underscore how much he wants a wife of his own. This time out, the story is also less of a broad morality tale and more of a tragedy, where no one ever gets to be at peace for long, and the fear and anger of the mob feels far more dangerous and frightening than the monster does. But maybe in adding all those elements and dropping away from the sheer simplicity of the first movie, Bride of Frankenstein loses a little of what makes the first movie iconic. It seems almost like the Ur sequel, the movie that set in stone what studio sequels should look like. It brings most of the cast back to do all those things that the people loved the first time, right up to giving Colin Clive as Dr. Frankenstein a chance to repeat his It's alive! It's alive! line from the first film in pretty much the exact same tones. At the same time, it's broader, bigger, and often sillier, coasting on the first movie's goodwill without really capturing many of its strengths. And yet the film comes down to a heartbreaking ending that feels more personal and human than the ending of the first movie, and that in no way comes from Shelley. In the end, though, none of the original Frankenstein's endless sequels, spinoffs, sequels, and reimagining ever really matched the impact of that first film. Maybe simplicity really is best, even if it did eventually turn Mary Shelley's book into a bit of a monster that ran amok outside of everybody's control. To start with a place that I started from, have either of you read the Shelley book? Is it at all significant to either of you? Not significant, no. I think I've read maybe a condensed version of it. I remember when I was a kid, I had like a kind of omnibus book of Frankenstein, I think Dracula, and one other kind of horror classic that had been kind of like compressed into a single volume. But I don't think based on the length of Frankenstein, it was the complete story. And regardless, I haven't revisited it since I was quite young. For me, it's always been like the movie is the main text, I think. I haven't read it at all. I have seen uh, the Kenneth Branagh movie, Mary Shelley's <laughs> Frankenstein, however, which I remember is murky and bad. But I'm kind of curious, just based on your thoughts, I guess, on the Shelley book, how much Branagh actually brought into it, because uh, I don't really recall a tremendous amount of complexity from the monster in that one. But that doesn't mean that that memory of is... <laughs> true. Uh, and I, I don't think De Niro would have played uh, the monster if there wasn't something more significant to draw on for it. So maybe I should go back. Yeah, it's I mean, the book itself, it's one of those things that I came to as an adult. And it was just it just completely boggled my mind. It's like reading one of the Mary Poppins books after growing up with the Disney version, you just you can't quite believe that it's entirely the same story, even if some of the character names are the same. Mostly what stands out for me about the novel is that it's just, it's full of the monster giving like chapter long soliloquies <laughs> and going back to the movie again and, and seeing like in the first movie, Frankenstein literally doesn't say a word. He he doesn't get to talk until the second movie. He just goes, rawr, rawr, <laughs> like a, an engine trying to start. <laughs> yeah. 
And I, there are aspects of it. I mean, I can see having just like read a handful of like reviews from the time, or at least the snippets of them that are readily available online. It was a different age for movies and seeing something uncanny on screen for adults at the time kind of felt like I think we felt as kids when we saw our first like uncanny things on screen, you know, the the things that just kind of like break reality in, in ways that we're not ready for as children and that like end up sort of sticking in our head as like like long term childhood micro traumas, you know, the, the things that gave us nightmares. There was a lot of writing at the time about how eerie and, and monstrous and unsettling the monster is and just how deeply terrifying the movie is. And I don't think it plays as terrifying to us today. It plays as kind of tragic, but I, your mileage may vary. I mean, how do you take this movie in terms of its balance between like horror and humanity or, you know, like as, as a classic story, does it still move you or does it just remind you of like all of the things created by people who it moved? There's just specific scenes that I, I don't know if moving is quite the the word, but I, I think the big scene from Frankenstein is the scene with, between him and the, and the little girl that's a beautiful scene that's tragic and horrifying at the same time of frankenstein who's a monster but is essentially an innocent just like this child engaging with her on her level but with the understanding that these pretty things float in the water and and the girl is a pretty thing who you would also think floats in the water and there is something really sad about that even though you know he's got a uh abnormal monster brain <laughs> yeah I, as far as like its place as horror even i a noted horror wimp am not going to sit here and and say that i found frankenstein <laughs> horrifying in the year 2023 but it was surprising how you know i guess gruesome it can be in parts scott you mentioned the very famous scene between frankenstein and the girl by the water's edge but i had forgotten a few scenes later when the girl's father is carrying her limp drowned yeah. body through the streets which is an image that doesn't get invoked as much but is pretty intense you know and as you know natasha like it starts in a graveyard you know with a a grave robbery basically and like you can see the pre-code jumping out in, in this film in a lot of ways the father gets strangled in the next in the second film too and the mom dies yeah. they both yeah. bo the whole family's gone it's like <laughs> they, 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 these movies do they go hard as they say uh yeah these films and i think in terms of the fear i mean i think it's just it's just it has to do with context i could tell you a story from my from my dad's childhood he had went to see the film abbott and costello meet meet frankenstein which if you recall <laughs> is an abbott and costello movie with it, with it that has all the universal monsters in it and uh it is a comedy i should note but my dad uh, my dad a, a boy with his new you know cheap belt it was so scared he chewed <laughs> through the entire belt uh <laughs> while he was watching abbott costello meet frankenstein so i think you can say that, that that this film does carry a certain amount of shock and of course a, a lot of it has to do with the style. I mean, it is a it, mm -hmm. it's a very striking film. It is a film that takes both films take visual cues from the you know, the German expressionist films that were being made at the time. A, a lot of shadow work, you know, a lot of really dramatic sort of single source lighting effects, and then of course the makeup effects. It does kind of give you that sense of like you know grandeur and and darkness and you know gothic horror. I think that you're really 
wanting from a universal horror film. It's not the scariest of the universal horror films. I think I feel more, much more unnerved by The Invisible Man than these two films. But I can see, you know, if I'm trying to put myself back, you know, into an audience from 1931 that has not been exposed to a whole lot of movies like this, I could see being pretty freaked out by it. What is that why you think this movie has such an enduring legacy? Like, is it the style, the visual style? Is it something in the themes? Is it the performance? Is it Karloff's appearance? Like, what about this movie do you think makes it so resonant that we're still seeing, you know, people presenting Frankenstein like this exact way, even though he's been reimagined like over and over and over in so many different media? I mean, it feels simplistic to say, but yeah, I think it's Karloff. I think it's that performance. Like the fact that he is able to tap into this sense of like empathy with this monster is was remarkable. And I think and I understand recognized as remarkable at the time and kind of unexpected. Like I don't think that like anyone necessarily went into this movie like expecting him to do what he did with the monster. And that is why it became a success and iconic, you know? And of course, like, you know, the makeup and design are a big part of that as well. But there's just something in his eyes, I guess, that that really just makes you feel for this monster, even in a movie that doesn't really give you a lot of reason to feel like deeply for him. And I think that because of that, it like, gives the the ideas and the themes of the movie more weight you know like I, like I, there's a version of this movie where you can be on the side of the mob you know you know like 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 get rid of the scary monster like that's the horror movie version of it but because of what Karloff does with the monster it adds this cognitive dissonance to the idea that just taps into the movie's kind of themes and questions about humanity yeah, I mean, how often can we really talk about, you know, a horror movie villain or, or monster being both terrifying and pitiable at the same time? I mean, there's something deeply human about this monster that can't, at least in the first film, express itself at all, but is is this unholy thing that's been brought to life and is, is confused and frightened itself and, and driven by impulses that it can't control. And, and so it's, it's hard to uh, hold any of his actions against him. Just that early scene where he like sees the light, you know, and he's like drawn physically to the light and his arms go up like a plant, like a living thing, <laughs> you know, like drawn drawn to sunlight and is like kind of pushed out of it by Frankenstein. It establishes it right from the go. And it's a completely silent moment. And yeah, it's I'm sure it was scripted, but it's in the performance, man. One of the things that strikes me every time I rewatch this movie that just comes from the the differences between Shelley's novel and this film is that in Shelley's novel, pretty much the moment Victor Frankenstein looks on his creation, he's repulsed by it and rejects it and, and runs away from it. And the monster more or less has to make its own way in the world, find its own education, kind of find its own, own grounding as an individual. But here, Henry Frankenstein, they changed the name and, and relegated Victor to a second character. 
He's like just this malign, abusive parent who's in the picture the whole time. You know, he wants very specific things from his his undead son. He has all these expectations that just feel very much like a, a little league dad in terms <laughs> of, you know, he's going to do all of these great things and then everybody's going to see that I'm the wonderful one. And at the same time, he starts abusing him almost instantly. You know, that scene with the sunlight is so tragic because it's just, he kind of says, hey, like, look what my my large adult son can do. <laughs> he responds to the light. Now let's smack him for responding to it. And then, of course, he leaves him in the, the care of his, you know, evil assistant who keeps whipping the monster, you know, just for fun or waving a fire in his face just to see him like cringe and, and cry out. This is just a very abusive family dynamic in a way that's really outside what Shelley does with the book, but in a way almost darker. Like there's something very kind of like elegant and philosophical and distanced about the novel you know, which is just very much about like intellectualism and and different philosophies of ways of life. This is just kind of visceral in a bunch of different scenes. You certainly don't blame the monster uh, for killing off uh, the assistant. There's also to kind of tap into what you're saying about the parent-child relationship. Is Frankenstein's father in this film, is that an addition from the book? I don't recall, Do you? but I assume it is. It's been quite some time since yeah. I read the book. I remember him having, you know, he he is an aristocrat. He is from a big family. He does get a lot of support. I think his father is in the book, but his father didn't make as much of an impact on me. He certainly, I don't think he has nearly the same sense of like a demanding, constantly present Martinet. Yeah. Like he, I know that he does have a, a place in the book because I remember the book coming to a point where some tragic things happen that don't happen here and his father dies as a result of them. So he's definitely there, but I, I don't think he has the same sense as he does here. Yeah, I bring it up just because I always forget about the closing beat of this movie, which is just so, so weird. And I, I believe tacked on uh, or like added after the fact, right, with with Frankenstein's father toasting to his future, you know, the grandchild or like the, you know, the line living on. That is all so surprising in both films of just like, where is anyone going to kind of like blame Dr. Frankenstein for any of this? Like there's no accountability at all. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just, it's all, it's all class. It's all classic Nepo baby uh, behavior. Uh, this, is, this, is we, this is how it all, this I thought is how that was it a works. funny thing about the, about by Bride of Frankenstein. Cause it kind of feels like maybe in the first movie, nobody outside the immediate family who was actually there knows that this monster is, is Frankenstein's doing, but in Bride of Frankenstein, some Somebody just kind of casually says like, oh, yeah, this is the monster that Henry Frankenstein stitched together from dead bodies and brought to life with electricity. Got to go stop it before it kills any more people. <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah, nobody. No well, they, well, they saw they saw him get tossed off of the mill in the first movie. So that, you know, the jig was up. <laughs> Which he also improbably survived. Yeah, yeah. In Red I was surprised, Tasha. Your your keynote had it as almost self evident that the sequel was not as good as the original, and I, that is not that is not necessarily a, a common line line of thought. A lot of people think Bride of Frankenstein is the superior of the two films. It's got a lot of uh, you know uh, sort of camp elements. It's got it's got Doctor Pretorius in it. It's got all those really cool little little dudes that he creates. <laughs> it's got it's got that incredible ending with uh, where, where the bride comes to life and yet and yet the tone made it seem like it was pretty like there was some pretty significant distance for you between the first and the second here 
Yeah, I mean, for me, the the second one, it has like a lot of memorable imagery and it kind of seems like everybody's having fun. I think Dr. Pretorius is a blast. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think he's just a delight whenever he's on screen. And it wasn't until this viewing that I kind of went, oh my gosh, this is where they got the entire like imagery, the, the wardrobe, the hair, the facial expression, everything for Judge Doom and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Uh, but he, yeah, his his little like lunchtime repast with a skull and a pile of bones down in the catacombs. Uh, yeah. He is a loon and he's a delightful <laughs> loon. And and I love that actor. But I don't know the whole thing where it's like, yeah, hey, you know what everybody loved from the first movie was like lengthy laboratory sequence. Let's do all of that exactly again. And then we'll have him say the same thing at the end of it. You know what people loved? Karloff, like, lurching around, grunting. Let's do that, but let's also have him smoke and drink because it's funny. No, but that's good stuff. That, no, all of that's great. It's all the... the okay, so, but we got to talk about the blind man, yeah. the, the, the blind man's house, because that is the scene or sequence that, like, for me anyway, brings Bride to a, a slightly higher level than the original, because it's where Frankenstein... Or where the monster, sorry... <laughs> <laughs> where the monster like grows like keith is not here <laughs> he learns he learns to speak and and, and he learns to, he, he, he like he's hungry that's part of his motivation in the early part of the movie like the guy just needs to eat something <laughs> you know and he gets like food and drink and smoke and music and companionship i just i love that scene and of course then the angry mob or their their two representatives come in and, and ruin it all but you know as far as sort of like the humanizing Frankenstein sequences of of these two movies, like, yeah, The Girl by the Water is iconic and really striking in its own way. But I love those cabin scenes so much. I think what makes the cabin scene work for me, like, I I, honestly, I find Frankenstein's, you know, smoke, good, (laughs) booze, good, Uh, like all that stuff, pretty comedic. And, you know, not in the best way, like a less like it's trying to be funny and more like it's, you know, trying to be at least a little moving. I think what makes the sequences in the cabin work for me is O.P. Heggie's performance mm-hmm. as the the blind hermit. Mm-hmm. You know, when he when he breaks down and says, you know, God's given me a friend. I prayed for companionship. I prayed for some somebody to do something about my incredible loneliness. Like that's that is moving and and effective and meaningful, but I don't know, a lot of it a lot of it just plays like camp for me and not necessarily a great camp either. I like the balance of humor and not in Bride of Frankenstein. It is a, a feature, not a bug to me, the campiness. And I'm sure this is a symptom of just the original movie and monster becoming like so iconic and, and referenced over time. But Bride feels more of its own thing, I guess, or, uh, or, or it feels more unexpected. I haven't seen it as much that that may be part of it, too. But the tone just feels more singular to me than Frankenstein. And I mean, I'm always a sucker for horror comedy. It's like the strain of horror <laughs> that I can that I can do and I, I, I tend to enjoy. So maybe this is sort of like a a baseline for that but uh yeah i'm i'm on the uh preferring bride uh side of this so what did the two of you bride preferers uh think about uno o'connor like i i got tired of her very quickly popping up <laughs> just about every scene she, to say really obvious stuff oh the, the monster is scary you shouldn't let him out 
tie him up and keep him there. Just like echoing what other people are saying and constantly putting her aura in. Like at the point where the Burgomeister's like, shut up, woman. I was like, yeah, no, seriously, shut up, woman. I definitely had like the shut up woman the first couple times, but like she's a rake gag character. You, you know, like like the, the, the more we get her and we get her a lot, like I just I come around like, okay, yeah, more more of screaming Nellie. Why not? Yeah, I, I enjoy that character pretty well. And I think I think just if I'm speaking broadly, I think uh, I mean, it's kind of a draw for me between these two movies in terms of their value. But they but they do have kind of separate appeals. I mean, you, you, the, the first one is so stark mm-hmm. and basic and minimalist in a way that's quite satisfying. And I think I think the sequel does what sequels do, which is to broaden things out a little bit and, and uh, you know, populate the movie with things that are familiar but also things a lot of things that are a little bit wild and unfamiliar and bigger and, and stranger and so you get a lot of really fun unexpected things tonally you get you get characters like Pretorius uh and his creations it's so you know it's so and i think i think the 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 horror or the action in the film is itself a little bit more uh extreme so um starting at the very beginning in the in the in, in the windmill so uh yeah so it's it's kind of a draw for me but i think these films both have kind of their separate appeals and i think you know the first one just has so many just you use the word iconic which you know is the word i usually try to avoid but you just can't with these <laughs> yeah. movies because it's like because like frankenstein is just so full of iconic images and i certainly you do have some from bride of frankenstein particularly once the bride is up and screaming but i think these films are kind of on a par with each other and but for different reasons i just real quick i want to correct myself i said uno connor's character's name was millie it is in fact Minnie. i apologize i don't want her to scream at me about that <laughs> <laughs> you know she would i know i'm not sure she can talk in a in a non-scream she voice be frau blucher right is that is it would yeah. she be the frau blucher character <laughs> okay, I I was going for a serious question after this, but yeah, let's let's touch on the the young Frankenstein of it all. Yes, please. <laughs> there are so many just you know also kind of iconic like riffs on this character, you know, comedic riffs or ridiculous serious riffs. The one that always stands out for me is. I Frankenstein, the uh, like ridiculous action movie of not so long ago, oh, man. and uh. how the Spanish language version was Yo Frankenstein, <laughs> and uh, there were there were just plenty of gifts like rolling around the year that movie came out of like Yo yeah. Frankenstein. But it's a little hard for me to rewatch the thirty one version without expecting a horse to whinny in the background, or it's for somebody to say roll, roll, roll in the hay. There's plenty or, in like, the second one though. An, it's like Abby normal half. joke. <laughs> Does all of that like get in the way of you like taking these movies seriously? Like does does any of the later iconography or referential humor interfere with these movies for you? Oh, they're wonderful. I, I like. I, I do. I do. I do have certain things. A few things that that do come to mind uh, between the two movies and Young Frankenstein is one. I think is that Gene Wilder really does sound quite a lot like Colin Clive in this. I, I think when he says, you know, he does the "It's Alive" thing quite well, just projecting a certain type of histrionics. Uh, they feels very aligned. I'm always amused by the fact that Fritz in this movie and Igor and and Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein basically make the same mistake with regard to the brain. Uh, uh, <laughs> though, 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 in the, though in Young Frankenstein, he calls uh, he calls it Abby normal. 
Remember, like he did. That's whose brain he yeah. got. Abby normal uh, instead of abnormal. And then the other thing is that is that in the scene with the blind man who who in uh, Young Frankenstein is played by Gene Hackman, I I always expect the blind man to ladle soup onto uh, onto Frankenstein's lap, and that does not happen in the Bride of Frank in Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> somehow yeah. and yet i mean in terms of comedic tone that wouldn't be too terribly far off uh what bright oh, is actually yeah. doing he tolerates it though in young frankenstein he's he's stung by it but he's, he hangs in there to bring in another oft-cited reference on this show the simpsons of course specifically the treehouse of horror episode particularly the first few simpsons treehouse of horror episodes had a warning from marge that opened them that was modeled on edward van sloan's pre-credits warning from frankenstein and that's such a like deep set reference for me that when bride of frankenstein starts it's weird that there's not like it doesn't bring back that warning and at the end he goes well if you didn't listen to me last time, you're not going to listen to me now, like Marge. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, so, so where you at on that? Where you where you at on the weird openings? Are you that that or 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 Mary Shelley hanging out? Uh, with, <laughs> oh, I love I love Mary Shelley hanging out with 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 her okay, husband. And okay. by and by the way, quick little thing. Uh, but I, I noticed uh, watching these two back to back that I I hadn't before. But in Frankenstein, she's credited as Mrs. Percy Shelley. But in Bride of Frankenstein, she gets to be Mary Shelley. Yeah. I really enjoy Gavin Gordon's performance as Lord Byron in Bride mm-hmm. of Frankenstein. Just like he's so swanny, you know, he is he is unquestionably being coded as, uh, you know, if not a gay icon, then like the bi icon that he should be. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very swishy, but he's also just like so deliriously happy about like the the horrors of the first movie in a way that's I like I find very fun. But yeah, the the contrast between the first movie essentially sending somebody out to say, if you're a, a person of a nervous disposition, you might die. Like, be very <laughs> careful before you watch this movie. Versus the second movie kind of saying, like, hey, let's all sit around the fireside and and hear a scary story. It's a good night for it. There's a there's a storm out and like everybody is is feeling a little like dark and gloomy anyway and we know that you love morbid things so like come a little closer and i will tell you another tale of murder is the tone and it's just but it's also, a very ow, different I pricked approach my finger and i'm bleeding <laughs> uh, it, you gotta say it's it's pretty audacious for Ryder frankenstein to include mary shelley saying hey this is the rest of the story that my story that you <laughs> that has that you have not adapted it at all faithfully so uh, uh that, that that's audacious uh, I, don't, I can't think of an equivalent to that of just like uh, it'd be like uh, including Stephen King in a Shining sequel or something talking about <laughs> talking about <laughs> talking about or, talking know, about trotting what it out, trotting him out at the beginning of a Shining sequel to say you know here's here's some more of my story uh, that, that you loved so much the first time and then at the end have him crash through a door and go here's Stevie because <laughs> he needs to play two characters <laughs> So speaking of playing two characters, this this was in my discussion list. Mm-hmm. The double casting in in Bride of uh, Frankenstein, like, what do you make of the fact that the person who is Mary Shelley, who's presenting the story, who's kind of the most in charge at the beginning and the, and the most vocal, she comes back to play the monster who is inarticulate, just as, as Frankenstein was in the first movie. You know, she can only express herself with gestures and screaming. And yet she's 
she is very expressive and she she comes to life with immediate like desires and opinions. She kind of seems to know what she wants from the get go uh, in a way yeah. that the the monster didn't, which also seems kind of bold. Do you think it's significant that she plays both roles or is it just, you know, economy casting? I wouldn't even call it economy casting. I think it maybe it'd be gimmick casting more, more, more than anything. Like to once again, quote Marge Simpson. I just think it's neat. <laughs> did you, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't recognize her though. Did, did you, did you recognize her? I mean, I didn't know until, until this question came up that it was a double casting situation. Do you think that if you're in the audience that you pick up on the fact that, that the same, the same woman was playing both characters? I don't know. She certainly styled very differently. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> yes, she is an updo. I knew it just as like trivia, so I can't say like if I would have recognized it without that knowledge. But I do think it's it functions nicely as a as a bookend moment too, because like this movie's called Bride of Frankenstein, but she's not in it as she, like the titular character is not in it for very long. Although, actually, let's talk about this because the we call the monster the Bride of Frankenstein, but actually. Elizabeth is the bride of Ooh. Frankenstein here. Oh. And and like she is also kind of a more present she's a pretty present character in the first movie too, but she is sort of the main driver of keeping Henry Frankenstein from or trying to pull him from this maniacal god complex he has and bring him back back to humanity. So and there might be some sort of mirroring happening there. But to go back to my original point, I think like the double casting may be less of a sort of thematic or character thing and more of just like we open the movie with this person and we uh, end the movie with her creation or a creation that is a result of her her work yeah i'd love to know more about the history because because these movies are so iconic <laughs> there's information about them but, but because they're getting onto a century old a lot of the things that we would take for granted being able to find out about them today because you know everybody would have given interviews it's harder to dig up you know they they just didn't do like movie publicity in the same way back then and trying to to dig up like clips from the time or commentary from the time there were a lot of things that i was very curious about that i i just couldn't locate uh, in the amount of time that we had to prep for this this particular episode, you know, which we're recording early because of the holidays. So, I, I mean, I would love to know what the, the thinking is, mostly because if something like that was done today, it would unquestionably be a, a commentary. You know, it would be mm -hmm. about like self-insertion. It would be about the author expressing something about herself and her life and her relationships by putting herself in the story in the form of this helpless, inarticulate creature that nonetheless has very strong opinions and awesome hair. <laughs> I don't know if that's something that they would have been thinking about at all at the time, or it literally came down to like her agent saying, no, she's not going to do this if she doesn't get any lines. Like you've got to find her another part where she gets to like speak and be human and not just be this shrieking thing. Like, I don't know. I have to say, uh, one of the toughest L's in movie history for this creature that's been created for the monster, uh, who is like no other creature but him, just immediately rejecting him, <laughs> right? I mean, just like friend, and it's like, nope, I'm screaming in, in horror at you. And that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a tough loss for uh, uh, the monster. 
I mean, it's painful because we have so much context for him and for how readily people reject him and, you know, what his hopes were. But at the same time, I, I feel for her, too. Like, she's been alive for, like, 30 seconds, and he's already trying to put the moves on her. He's already, like, forcibly <laughs> sitting down. Say, he's grabbing her hand and, and putting it on his, and yeah, he's, he's yeah. getting touchy. Like, yeah. if I was on a first date and within 30 seconds the guy started putting his hands on me, I'd be like, you've been reading, reading pickup artist stories, and I want nothing to do with this. <laughs> Get over yourself. Yes, we can be friends. We're just going to be friends. Go be friends over there. Why is there a lever that destroys the entire lab? <laughs> I mean, what is, what's the I story there? You're saying you don't have a lever that destroys your house? I, I, I don't, why do we I do even not. have this lever, you're saying? Uh, I do not. <laughs> Maybe the handle of the bathroom uh, toilet or something that, that kind of you know, floods the place. But, yeah. Wow, if your bathroom flusher floods the place and you don't know that one way or another, I have a lot of questions about your household hygiene, Scott. I didn't get the impression that it was a destroy the lab lever so much as he was going to break something effectively. You know, the the tone didn't seem to be, oh, no, don't pull the self-destruct lever so much as like, hey, if you yank on that, it'll connect to this and this and there'll be an explosion. But, you know, the magic button that blows up the, the base is also a longstanding Hollywood convenience. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of electric electrical equipment in there. It's been established, you know, so maybe it's just... The lever that, I don't know, uh, controls the current and it just, you know, op open it up all the way. He's going to reverse the polarity of the neutron flow exactly. and then everything explodes. That's how it goes. <laughs> yes. Something, something tech. <laughs> I We should wrap this up. The one thing I really wanted to touch on before we left is just... The first movie was really not very far off from the beginning of, of sound movies. And it feels in a lot of ways more like a silent movie. You know, there are, there are very long sequences. The, the laboratory scene comes to mind and the Bavarian dance party, you know, the, the big wedding festival that just feels like silent movie pacing to me in terms of you know, we we went out of, our, out of our way to set this up. Here's a spectacle. And there's not a whole lot of, you know, what we would think of as like modern pacing in terms of something needs to happen that's actually moving the story forward. Like we're very content to look at this this hugely tall, interesting, like visual space. I mean, I, I love the whole idea of like you put your corpse on a, a slab and then it's like carried up to a, a skylight where it can be exposed to electricity. That's something else that like probably thousands of mad science stories have stolen ever since. But here there's just sort of a sense of like we we have interesting things to look at. So it's OK if if nothing is really happening in the story, you know, that didn't happen like in the last minute and like won't happen in the next minute. And I I mean, one of the things that's different between the, the first movie and Bride of Frankenstein is it just feels like, you know, filmmaking had moved forward a lot in terms of kind of like speed and efficiency of storytelling. Even if I don't care for, you know, Connor on, on screen all the time, like there there is a sense that, of course, you want to be occupied. You don't want to just be looking at spaces. Scott, I'm I'm sort of curious, like how the first movie in particular, you know, fits your your deep seated love of like <laughs> Taiwanese long shot slow cinema versus the the second movie, which just has has much more of a go 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 aesthetic. 
I mean, I, and I, as I had said previously, I, I, I like the contrast between the two. I like, I mean, I think that there's, I think they have a, they certainly have a continuity in terms of story and basic visual style that James Whale sort of brings to the table, like that kind of German expressionist style. But, but, I, but I do like, I, I do this, the simplicity of, of the first film in, in every respect, starting with the, the, the monster you know, continuing with just the look of the film, all that is quite deliberate and affecting in its way. It's an incredibly tight, basically hour, because, you know, you, the, with the intro, if you take away the intro, it's an hour long, and there's not really a wasted uh, moment in it. This is another reason why I'm a little surprised that, uh, Tasha, you're you're cooler on on Bride, because I feel like the sort of the long running dichotomy between, uh, you know, Scott loving his slow, long takes and you liking movies where a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> uh, you're on record as liking, you know, movies that, that kind of pack in a lot of incident and uh, stuff, as, as am I. And that's kind of, I think, maybe why I gravitated to, to Bride a, a, a little more. It's just like I found it more engaging and compelling on a, on a moment-to-moment basis because like hey it has humor and it has like some really cool visuals and it has this you know w- sequence with the the little people under glass you know and there's just like more uh, like kind of to discover about it rather than sitting with it and like both approaches like as scott says are valid and entertaining in, in their own ways and the contrast between the two is interesting but as far as like what the two of you tend to be drawn to i i would have guessed bride based on your history i think for me you know i i love movies like scott pilgrim versus the world or mm-hmm. everything everywhere all at once where you're challenged to keep up but everything is part of a theme you know mm-hmm. everything is is part of a central idea Bride just feels to me like much more of a grab a bag of kind of kind of random elements. You know, there's I I really kind of love the visual effect of Dr. Pretorius's little people in jars and his, you know, vast amusement. I have a lot of questions about how those <laughs> things eat and sleep and go to the bathroom. Like I like the way they that, squeak. Like they're little me, 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 me. The way they talk. They're, it's very yeah, cute. They're little little cartoon characters. Yeah. And his like weird little lustful king that he's like, oh ho ho, no. You you don't get to take advantage of the queen back in your jar. <laughs> that bishop's got his work cut out for him. <laughs> that king is just so clearly modeled after like you know portraits of henry the eighth he's just he's a very specific king that sequence kind of stretches out kind of goes on for a little too long but you know it's it's fun you know in a weird silly sort of way but for me slow cinema is fine i just i want to feel that there's something to look at that feels emotionally resonant and not just visually beautiful you know something that gives my brain somewhere to go in terms of what does looking at this vista or this, you know, theater or this space make me feel? And like the lab space in in Frankenstein makes me both gives me something to look at because it's a, a, a complicated, dark, like visually cool space. And it just kind of gives me something to think about in terms of kind of the, the big ideas of this extremely crazy person deciding that he knows better than everybody else in the world. And being determined to do this thing without thinking about whether he should or what will come next. So, you know, Frankenstein just gives me a lot to think about as well as look at. And Bride feels like a a big bowl of, of soup with a whole lot of stuff in it that doesn't necessarily go together. 
Okay, but I'll argue really quickly for the the people under glass segment as being thematically important, or at least like illustrative. And you say like it goes on too long. And perhaps that's because we have these like four different, you know, we have the king, the queen, the archbishop and the devil, but like, and the ballerina. Oh, I forgot about the ballerina. Well, she kind of messes up my theory, so let's ignore her. But like this, you know, this is a movie that is kind of like focused on dualities. You know, there's there's the famous gods and monsters line, and you kind of have the representative of God and monsters with the archbishop and the devil, and of course the male and female, the king and queen. So there is sort of this idea of there's two sides to humanity in in all its forms. But like I said, I don't know how the ballerina figures in there. So uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, yammering and James Whale thought it was cool, but <laughs> I'll go to bat for it. I, uh, I I think it lasted just as long as it needed to, ballerina or not. Scott, you a, you pro-ballerina or anti-ballerina? <laughs> I'm in. A pro, of course. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't remember whether there are any ballerinas in, in Poor Things, but boy, there sure as hell are uh, a lot. There's a lot on screen. There's a lot going on. Uh, there's a lot of weird comedy. There's a lot of uh, dark themes, like all of these things that we're kind of like tagging in here show up to greater and lesser degrees in Poor Things. And I think we're going to have a really interesting time comparing the two. But for now, we'll leave this discussion of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, and we'll be right back after this break. Well, this is the segment where we normally take feedback, but with this being the end of the year, there are so many movies out right now. We're going to talk about a bunch of them pretty shortly in our, our best of the year episode. But here, we just kind of wanted to take a moment to to talk about all of the pairings that we put together, including one that we framed up and then jumped away from it at the almost literally the last <laughs> second, uh, and just talk about all of the episodes of The Next Picture Show that could have been if we were doing this podcast, you know, three to five times a week <laughs> instead of one a week. But before we get into that, we want to shout out Film Spotting, The Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Campanar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh have just released an episode with their own discussion of poor things, alongside their takes on the Netflix movie May December, Ridley Scott's Napoleon, and the smaller movies Four Daughters and Fallen Leaves. Here we all are being smug because we did three movies in a pairing instead of two, and they're covering five movies in a show. (laughs) Way to make us look bad, guys. Uh, Also, I really can't wait to dig into your take on poor things. As far as this segment goes, Scott, you wanted to kind of like frame up in terms of uh, why don't you start with the one that until like, what, three days ago we were planning on doing for this show? Yeah, we were we were planning to do uh, an episode on a new film, American Fiction and Tootsie, which I think is a pretty... Uh, clever pairing because American fiction is about an ornery author who um, uh, doesn't really have much of a, a place in the literary world anymore, much like Dustin Hoffman and, and Tootsie. And so he takes on a different uh, voice, much like uh, Dustin Hoffman and, and Tootsie, <laughs> and, and writes a black book, uh, something that is a caricature of the sorts of books that have been that that have been bestsellers and of course you know it itself becomes a a uh, literary phenomenon uh that he sort of has to keep up on and that that again is like dustin hoffman and, and tootsie so it was a really tantalizing pairing that we would have done any other time i mean this is the problem that we're kind of having you know that we always have in in uh, november and december is that there are so many interesting movies coming out 
and movies that pair well with movies from the past because they're they're evocative of those movies. We, we have we have a lot of trouble in the summer where it's like, you know, here's the new Marvel movie. Like, what what do we do? <laughs> well, let's let's pair Wonder Woman with uh, with Paths of Glory. You know, it's like we just got to <laughs> find ourselves reaching. We found ourselves reaching, but we didn't have to reach that much. The another one I, w- I was thinking of that we we could have done that that, that we didn't do is is uh, the holdovers, uh, which is I think really a top top drawer Alexander mm-hmm. Payne uh, comedy and uh, and the Hal Ashby film The Last Detail, both of which are um, you know films that are, are either set in or, evoc- or uh, evocative of the early to mid seventies and have very similar tones. Have a kind of a, a, an idea of popular cinema or, or mainstream cinema that's so different from what we have now that's a lot more character driven um yeah they look similar it would have been a really fun comparison and then the last one you know which we still have the which we still has have the potential to do but it has been re- rejected <laughs> for reasons that i suppose will become obvious is is a uh, zone of interest schindler's list uh double feature we could have uh, <laughs> we could have doubled doubled up on holocaust films but i, I think uh i f- feel like i'm the only one who had kind of the taste for that i just i just uh wrote a big piece on schindler's lists uh 30th anniversary for the guardian and then and then you know uh, uh zone of interest uh will will certainly come up in a special episode that we're uh going to be doing uh you know after these two so um so i'll, I'll save that but uh, those are kind of three possible strong pairings that we could have done uh but didn't because of the year the calendar is so crowded I mean, it's still possible that we could get to Zone of Interest. It's it, A24 is doing one of their kind of, at this point, patented. There, It's it's coming out December 15th in select cities. Uh, it's going to expand wide in January. On January 7th, it's not coming out in European theaters until the beginning of February. So it'll still be relevant in January if, if we don't jump on something else. There's still so much coming out. We've got yeah. two weeks left in the year as we're recording this, and there's there's so much coming to town. Uh, I will be maybe a little disappointed if we don't do a a, a Wonka a Wonka off. <laughs> I, 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 I was just gonna say Wonka. we could have done Wonka. Yeah, it's yeah, a Wonka off, guys. <laughs> it's a Wonka off. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Except apparently one co-host of this show who may or may not be present does not enjoy the Gene Wilder film. Uh, so we, we could yeah, have had, yeah. we could have had a, a mash situation on our hands. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. uh, who I mean, knows indeed? Well, we figured I, these things out on the fly, more or less. We, we will doubtless be discussing this in January after we do our best of episode and, and figuring out like what we what we least talked about in the best of episode and most still want to talk about and just kind of what's uh, open for conversation in January. So feel free to contact us and let us know what you most want us to discuss uh, that you've seen coming out in uh, December, January that you, that you think would make for interesting discussions. Feel free to to suggest pairings or feel free to just give us feedback about this episode or episodes in the past and we'll hopefully get back to our feedback section soon we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and recommendations we can feature your response on a future episode if you would like to reach us leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. 
In our next episode, we'll bring in Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things for a radically different take on the Frankenstein story, one with a lot more sex than these 1930s movies and a lot more extremely poofy sleeves. <laughs> Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net. We're on Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, hey, I just scripted an entire podcast and helped bring it to life. Now I know what it's like to be God. God.